in normal life, kind of in, in our uh, non-spiritual life, if we want to say that, there is a fixation, it seems, on those who do the impossible. And that's very obvious even in the movie industry. And a disclaimer, I'm going to share some, some titles of movies that I, I, I don't endorse, I haven't watched, but they're popular enough that even I know about these movies. Okay, so see if you can guess. James Bond, right? James Bond. I mean, everybody, it seems like everybody has heard of James Bond. Maybe some of you uh, who have just come into the United States of America haven't. Uh, but James Bond is a, uh, is a, a created by a British novelist, Ian Fleming, in 1953. So that was before many of us uh, were born as a fictional uh, character. It's a British secret agent working for M16 under the code name 007. All right, 007. With the combined gross of $7.8 billion, uh, this film series has uh, made a lot of money. Adjusting for inflation, that would go up to about $19.2 billion in, uh, in our currency or in our, or in our uh, value today in 2023. So a lot of money. How about this? Next slide. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. And uh, there are, again... Tom Cruise, there's a whole series, there's seven movies that have come out to date. There's still an eighth one that's supposed to come out, I believe, next year. And we are fixated as a culture, it seems, on seeing somebody, watching someone do something impossible. And I think to some extent, we would feel like, man, I wish I could do that. Or how cool would it be to be able to accomplish some of the things that uh, they do in movies? Now, on a lighter note, who are these guys? Dude Perfect, yes. Leah's like, uh, yeah, Dude Perfect. Well, you know, these, these group of guys, uh, they're only followed by 59.6 million people on YouTube. 59.6 million people follow these five guys, college friends who began to do seemingly impossible trick shots with anything from a ping pong ball to a basketball, and now 59.6 million people, including um, my son, Michael, follow uh, these guys, Dude Perfect. And they're fun guys to watch. It's pretty amazing. But I want to introduce or at least remind you of someone who does so much more significant things in the world and in, in our life, and it can be in your life too, and that is God Almighty. God Almighty. First of all, we'll see that God works through impossible circumstances. Genesis chapter 48, most of the verses will be up on the screen, but feel free to follow along either on your phone or, or in your copy of the Bible if you uh, have that with you. And then most of the verses will be on the screen as well, and you can follow along on the notes that you have. So one of the reasons that we have handouts is that so if you miss something or you want to look something up again in Scripture or in the Bible after the service, I encourage you to do that. I am human. I make mistakes. And the Bible is what stands. That is our basis and foundation for authority. So that's why I include uh, oftentimes the references so that you can look at that even later again. But in Genesis chapter 48 and verse 21, we see this phrase, Then Israel... He's also known, this man was also known as a Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but his name was changed to Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So then Israel said to Joseph, one of his sons, Behold, behold I'm about to die, 
but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, it's interesting that uh, Jacob or Israel reminds Joseph of this because in many ways, and in, in a couple years back, in the very beginning of our church plant here, in the beginning of our, our history you know, as a church family, we went through the life of Joseph and, and in a lot of detail saw how God used a lot of seeming detours uh, to really lead Joseph to fulfill his perfect plan. But Joseph had so many impossible circumstances that he saw God work through that now his dad, Israel, or Jacob, is saying, Behold, I'm about to die, but God, don't forget, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. So let's look at a few of these truths quickly in the life of Joseph, but also will be true for you if you follow Christ. Uh, these things are also true for us. God will be present when others abandon you. Genesis chapter 37, verses 23 through 28. God will be present when others abandon you. So we see in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 37. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Friendly relations. This is just a... A great family to be a part of, right? Notice this. Then they sat down to eat. Can you imagine? I mean, so calloused that they take their younger brother, who these, if you read the whole story, they had become very, very jealous of Joseph. Joseph had a favored spot in the family. Uh, his dad loved him very much, had made this coat of many colors. Uh, he was a, uh, a very... Uh, loving child. He obeyed his dad. In fact, his dad had sent him on a mission to check on his brothers out in the field as they were uh, watching the sheep. And as, as he did that, and as he approached, these brothers saw their chance. And being very jealous, very angry, they threw him into a pit, and then they sat down to eat. So then it goes on, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and just a side note, the Ishmaelites, the, the term Ishmaelites and Midianites were often used interchangeably, and we'll see that even in this passage then Midianite pa traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. Now try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes and think, as they were lifting Joseph out of the pit, perhaps he thought, finally, they've come to their senses. Finally, they've realized that this is a bad idea, and they've, they've listened to the cries of help uh, that I've been you know, proclaiming, and they're, they're lifting me out, but no. It says, they drew Joseph and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they, or the Midianite traders, took Joseph to Egypt. Now, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 42, the brothers provide this very moment and what Joseph was doing while he was in the pit. So uh, jump ahead, Genesis chapter 42 and verse 21. Then they, these are the rest of the brothers, said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. So as they come to a difficult part of, point in their life, 
They don't know yet, and I'm, I'm kind of, this is a big story I'm trying to summarize quickly, but later God puts them in connection again with their brother Joseph, unbeknownst to them. Many years have passed. Joseph has changed. He's in Egypt. To their surprise, he has, li- has been li- lifted by God to a place of leadership. But at first, they don't know that it's Joseph. And as they seek help, as they seek relief from famine in that whole region, they're facing some difficulty and they're in distress. And so their, their, their guilty conscience, they begin to talk and they say, well, we're guilty of this because when our brother Joseph was in distress, when he begged us, we didn't listen. So when Joseph was abandoned by his brothers, those who should have loved him, those who should have stood up for him, God was still present with him. Genesis 39, verses 1 and 2. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now notice the next phrase. The Lord was with Joseph. Can you repeat that with me? We'll count to three and repeat that with me. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. The Lord was with Joseph. One more time. The Lord was with Joseph. His brothers weren't with him. His dad thought he was dead. He didn't have friends that, you know, that were with him that had been sold together. No, he had been sold alone. He had been betrayed. He'd been abandoned. But God was still with him. Now, some will willfully abandon you. And that really hurts the worst. When those, maybe those who could be with you decide, nope, I'm done, I'm out, and willfully abandon you, that seems to hurt the worst. Now, others will leave you because it's healthy even. I mean, just this today is a good example of that. We have uh, college students, university students, PhD students from different parts of the world, and lo and behold, your parents are not here with you. Now, in many cases, it's not because they abandon you. It's not because, of, because they hate you. It's be, because they want you to grow as an adult. They want you to, to go forward and, and pursue the steps of education in your life. So there's times when those who love you will abandon you, or not, or not, not say that, but won't be present with you for good reasons. But still, it's difficult. Still, there's times where there's, there's, you, know, you're, you're, you are alone and you wonder, how am I going to get through this? I'm the youngest of three boys, and I'll never forget. Um, I didn't ask Stephen for permission to say this, but he's my older brother, so I'll ask permission later. But as we took Stephen to drop him off uh, for his first semester uh, at Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, he's six years older than I am, I always saw Stephen as you know, just made of steel, not much emotion. He played football. He was my big brother. You know, on the playground, I would tell other kids, you better watch out because my big brother's around. You know, so that was kind of the mindset that I had with Stephen. But as we dropped Stephen off at college, I remember he was so nervous, he threw up. And I was like, I asked dad and mom, what is wrong with Stephen? In my, my, you know, my mindset as a kid, I was like, this is exciting. I mean, he gets a new room and he's staying in this like dorm thing and there's new ball fields and there's all kinds of people walking around. This is really cool. I wish I could stay. And Stephen's like nervous as all gets out, get out and he throws up. It's not because my parents had ups. But with Joseph, 
with you, whether people willfully abandon you or maybe even for your own good are not with you, God is still present for those who follow him. The last few weeks we've done a series and we'll continue that next week, Lord willing, through the I am statements in the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is one of the, sometimes it's called the Gospels of John. So he, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has used the book of John to record a lot of Jesus' life. And he records in the book of John seven or eight, depending on how you define it, I am statements of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at how Jesus said, I am the eternal present God, the truth when he said before Abraham was, I am. We've seen how Jesus has claimed to be God by saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd that we saw the last two Sundays. Next, we'll see in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these I am statements of Jesus remind us, especially the fact that he's the eternal present God, he will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, the next verse shows that specifically in black and white in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. For he, Jesus Christ, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think this is so phenomenal that Jesus Christ, the great I am, God the Son, created the universe, has all the power in the world, but yet in this verse... He's saying, he's telling us and reminding us, you know, we can say that the Lord is my helper. Absolutely. Although he is almighty, although he's the great I am, because of his intense love for you, he wants to be your savior first of all, and then as your savior, your helper. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. God will be present when others abandon you. Secondly, God is still all-powerful even when you feel powerless. God is still all-powerful even when you feel powerless. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, Joseph found himself in a very vulnerable place. He had been sold by and betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, taken out of his country. He's in a new place. He's in uh, this, the house of Potiphar. But the, these verses remind us God was with him. God was still all-powerful, and God made his way to succeed. Joseph didn't try to bribe Potiphar. Joseph didn't try to manipulate Potiphar and the people in Potiphar's house. Joseph, as he went through, and we don't know all the thoughts that he had someday in heaven, I'd like to have, I was going to say coffee, but I don't drink a lot of coffee, so we'll sit down and have some sweet tea, and we'll talk about, Joseph, what are all the thoughts that you thought through in these different things of life? But he, he saw, and, and God's word reminds us again and again, the Lord was with Joseph. At the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and Eve, they willingly chose to sin. Because of that, they saw the consequences, the harmful consequences of sin, although God had warned them, but they chose to use their own free will and sin against a perfect and holy and almighty God. Since that time then, 
our lives have been affected in every way by the corruption of sin. So we still live in a corrupt and fallen world. So there will be times when because of that corruption, because of the sin, that we will be left with and oftentimes feeling powerless. Think about this. Your spouse suddenly leaves you and leaves you to pick up the pieces and try to raise your children. That is a time where often people feel very powerless. What do I do now? How do I move forward now? Perhaps someone that you love very deeply, maybe even a child, maybe even a a parent, uh, an uncle, maybe a very close friend, you, you are seeing them getting more and more enslaved and destroyed by an addiction, an alcohol addiction, a drug addiction, a sex addiction, or whatever it may be, and you feel powerless. God's still powerful. God is still present. He's still powerful. He can still help you. Maybe the company that you've sacrificed for and you put in overtime and you've even maybe denied some things from your own health and your own family, but suddenly there comes a day and they're like, hey, we don't need you anymore. Don't bother coming back on Monday. What? You feel powerless, but God is still all powerful. Thirdly, God acts justly even when others act unjustly. Genesis 39 and verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. No, 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 wait up. How, how did that happen, Pastor David? What happened from God making everything to succeed for him to now he's being thrown into prison? Well, Potiphar's wife liked Joseph. It appears that Joseph maybe was a good-looking man and younger and strong. And so Potiphar's wife uh, liked Joseph and was trying basically to seduce him, uh, to get him to lie with her sexually. He resisted, resisted, resisted until one day she caught him by the coat and, and tried to force him. And he ran, left his coat there. She falsely accused him, told the workers and said, this is what, you know, Joseph has done. And then when Potiphar came home, tried to cover her tracks again and say, this is the guy who you brought into our household and look how he has tried to make a fool of me by taking advantage of me. He's falsely accused. But we see in Genesis chapter 39, in verse 20 then again, Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And I want you to think just a second about this phrase. And he was there in prison. This does not seem to be the next logical step in Joseph's career path. This doesn't seem to be a way that an almighty God should work. God, why am I in prison? Why did you allow, I mean, it seemed like things were going well enough. You know, although I've been betrayed and sold and taken from my country, but things were starting to pick up again. But now I'm in prison. We see that God shows steadfast love. The very next verse, Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. All right, let's say it again. Here we go. Lord was with Joseph. One, two, three. The Lord was with Joseph. One more time. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the key, folks. Joseph wasn't like this resilient man made of steel and iron that's like, okay, it doesn't matter if I'm in prison. No, God was with him. That's the only reason that he succeeded. That's the only reason that he could still go forward and move forward. Because God shows steadfast love. 
doing growth groups, you're going to look at a passage in Psalm 63 that has been a huge encouragement to me. A very low point, an uncertain point in my life, this, this psalm God used in a phenomenal way to remind me of how important his steadfast love is. Psalm 63, 3 and 4, I'll just read it to you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, the psalmist says. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Now, if you'll notice, at the top of Psalm 63, there is a title of where this psalm was written. Some little bit of information about it. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. There's two possibilities that maybe David wrote this psalm. One possibility is that he wrote this psalm while fleeing and while trying to save and spare his own life when King Saul and those that were with King Saul, his soldiers, were trying to kill him. That's one possibility. It's more likely, though, that David wrote this psalm in the wilderness of Judah. King David, in the wilderness of Judah, it's more likely that he wrote this psalm when his own son, Absalom, was rebelling against his dad, King David, and trying to perform a coup and steal the kingdom from his dad. That is more likely when David wrote the words, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We see that God shows steadfast love. We're in a political campaign time frame and we can see that politicians can lose favor very quickly. And the pollsters are quick to remind them of where they stand, right? Seems like every other day, maybe sometimes even every day, sometimes twice a day, it's like, well, now the standings are this. Okay. Politicians can lose favor very quickly. Athletes can be crowned one day because of their great performance and then harshly criticized the next because they had a bad game. Singers, actresses, those in Hollywood and other performance-based industries like that, they can be valued more for how they can perform and what they can do than who they are. We see oftentimes that We lose, we can lose and be treated unjustly very quickly. Maybe the person that you thought was going to be your spouse, your soulmate, all of a sudden friend zones you over a phone call or a text. How could they, you think? But God acts justly even when others act unjustly. The community that you're in, maybe the school community, maybe even your your neighborhood or perhaps even your relatives and and culture in general, we're part of a cancel culture. And so the culture may cancel you in a certain way, but all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that Jesus is calling you because he acts justly. He is for your good. He wants to redeem you and give you purpose in life. God shows steadfast love. God moves in the hearts of others. We see this again in Genesis chapter 30, 39. Genesis 39 and verse 21, once again, but the Lord was with Joseph, and then the latter part of the verse, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So from that phrase where we saw, and there he was in prison, But now God's making it evident again that he's still with Joseph and working behind the scenes, even in ways that Joseph probably could not fully understand, but was giving him favor in the eyes of the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
A few verses later, Genesis chapter 39 and verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, Joseph was phenomenal. No. And whatever he did, Joseph was the greatest of all time. No. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God moves in the hearts of others. You, no doubt, if you haven't already, no doubt will face times that others will act very unjustly towards you. And you may wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Well, part of it is just because we live in a sinful, corrupt, and fallen world. But thankfully, God Almighty shows us all throughout Scripture that He acts justly. From the beginning, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, He already reveals there is a plan for redemption, and it's going to come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as He offers then justice through Jesus Christ, we can be uh, encouraged even when others act unjustly towards us. I won't go through the whole story, but just in my own life, I've seen, there's been times where I've, I have felt, you know, very wronged. We were swindled, 17,000 plus dollars by a travel agent. We were trying to help a mission team come down to Brazil and we were swindled, 17,000 plus dollars. That was, I did not, like that, obviously. But through the next couple of years that it took to kind of work through that process, we saw in several phenomenal ways God acts justly, even though we were treated unjustly. You're going to be criticized, perhaps, for things that you do, but if you're following Christ with all of your heart, He acts justly. Many times throughout our ministry history, we've had things stolen from our church buildings. We've had things stolen even from our own home. But God still acts justly. We've been criticized for different methods of ministry and, and motives, and sometimes rightly so because I'm human and I don't always have the right motives. But other times, I believe they were sincere and really wanted to please Christ. That's okay because God acts justly even when others don't. Next, we see that God remembers when others forget. God remembers when others forget. In Genesis 40, so he's still in prison. There's two men there, and they, they have uh, some dreams, and they, want, uh, they, they think there's some meaning to these dreams. And God, in a miraculous way, uses Joseph to interpret those, those dreams. One of, the, one of the end of the dreams was good. He was restored as a cupbearer to the king. And Joseph asked him and said, listen, when you go back to the king, remember me. I haven't done anything to be here. So just can you remember me and, and mention me when you go back to Pharaoh, when you go back to your place as cupbearer. But notice Genesis chapter 40 and verse 23. It says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And there he was in prison. Later we see the Lord was with him and caused Joseph to be seen in a favorable way in the, in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And everything, God made it succeed while Joseph was in prison. Yet, he's been forgotten. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 reminds us, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you're working and serving to please him, first and foremost, he'll never forget. He'll never forget you. He's already promised. We've already seen that he'll, he'll never abandon you. He'll never leave you. And he'll never forget you. We enjoy recognition. The two simple words, thank you, often will bring a smile either to our face or at least to our hearts. We enjoy being, being appreciated, and, and all those things are, are good and fine, but many times you won't be appreciated. People aren't going to say thank you to you, but you can know that God is always working out his plan. He has not forgotten you if you follow him as your Savior. Next, we see that God can do the impossible through you. Notice Genesis chapter 41 and verse 1. There was none but God. We're going to see this phrase in the next couple of verses. Genesis chapter 41 and verse 1. After two old years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And we're not going to get into the specifics of the dream, but then notice what happened in verse 8 of Genesis 41. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. But there was none. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. What would you attempt to do for God, or, so that you can interpret it? And then notice uh, next verse, verse 16, Genesis 41, verse 16. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God. So there was none, Pharaoh says, there was none, but then Genesis 41, 16, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Next, we'll see a phrase in Genesis 50. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. When Joseph's brothers discovered that Joseph was still alive, was still actually very much alive, he was, had been elevated to a place of high leadership, only second in command in Egypt, they were fearful. In fact, they, they came back to Joseph and they said, hey, your, your, your father, Joseph, which was their father too, your father gave us this command to tell you, uh, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they're trying to man still manipulate Joseph in a way and they're saying, this is what your dad, they knew that Joseph was, you know, deeply loved Jacob, Israel, their dad, so, Joseph, just so you know, Dad said, you need to forgive us. Joseph was broken and wept. And then notice what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's life had been nothing probably like he had expected. If he had attended a, a career day, you know, back, in, back at that time, and his counselor, his advisor had sat down with Joseph, 
Joseph would not have expected his advisor to say, okay, well, you're going to be betrayed by your brothers, and then um, you'll be sold into slavery. Um, well, first of all, you'll be thrown into a pit. Okay, just so you know that, that's a good next step for you. And then you're going to be sold as a slave. Then you'll be falsely accused. Then you'll be thrown into prison. Joseph didn't expect these things. But God was working the impossible through him as he spared an entire nation through a time of famine. Many of us have heard and have kind of talked about through the years and even been inspired by five young missionaries who were killed as they were attempting to make contact and personal contact and give the gospel to uh, the uh, Walrani tribe, uh, also known by many as the Aka Indians. That tribe doesn't like the term Aka actually because it means savage, uh, but the Wawani tribe, so Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCauley. And they were martyred for their faith. Some of you may also know that Nate Saint's older sister, Rachel Saint, and then Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, continued to work among those people still for decades. But what you may not know is there's two other women that God, through this, what seemingly was a horrific event, when five young men were killed, separated from their families, obviously through death, but two other women were led by God to go and work in that area. I think the next slide will show one of them, Catherine Peake. Josh is trying. It's not his fault. All right, we're going to come up. Okay, so. Catherine Peake. Who has heard of Catherine Peake? Isn't that interesting? Five men who gave their lives, and rightly so. We've heard of them. We've heard of, uh, you know, probably Rachel Saint, certainly, you know, Elizabeth Elliott. But Catherine Catherine Peake spent decades along with Rosie Jung, and she was from Germany. Catherine Peake was from North Carolina, I believe. And they worked to translate the New Testament into the Wau Tedito language. And in 1992, these two women, along with many of the Walrani tribe helpers who were helping them through the process, were able to dedicate the entire New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, in the local language of the Walrani tribe, the Wal Tedito language. What those initial Walrani warriors meant for evil, God meant for good. And now, for, from moving on, they have the New Testament in their very own language. And largely because of two women who, until a few days ago, I had never heard of, but faithfully served Christ in translating Scripture for them. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. God loves impossible sinners. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 through 10. You know, most babies are lovable. When babies are born, we think they're cute. Most little puppies are lovable. The, the problem is is that babies and puppies grow up and then they're not always so lovable as humans we are typically not very lovable beings man pastor david speak for yourself you know not for me well this is the description that we see in romans chapter 5 and verse 8 but god shows his love for us what's the description verses 6 through 10 i'm going to just pull out a few of the phrases from those verses for while we were still weak ungodly, still sinners. We were enemies. So let me ask you, would, you, would your tendency be to love a terrorist? Would your tendency be to, to show love to a rapist? Would you be naturally inclined to show love to a pedophile? 
Would you be naturally inclined to show love to a murderer, especially someone maybe who had murdered your loved one? Oh, goodness. I mean, well, obviously not. But as we really begin to think on the wickedness that's in our own hearts apart from Jesus Christ, the vast difference from how we would feel towards someone like that is, is even more that we can't even comprehend of the difference between our holiness, which we don't have any, and God's holiness, which is perfect. But yet he showed his love for us. Then he gives the unimaginable. Christ gave his life for, your, for yours, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, once again, shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the unimaginable. Why would he give his life for you and me that we're weak and ungodly and enemies? Because of his love. Christ can cover your unrighteousness with his righteousness, Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood to be declared righteous, even though we weren't, because of the righteousness of Christ. Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And then we see also in Romans chapter 5, Christ can reconcile you to God. He can reconcile me, imperfect, sinful, wicked, enemy of God initially. He can reconcile me to a holy God. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what we deserved was punishment. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God or restored to a relationship by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Christ can reconcile you to God. You, let me help you, friend. You cannot do enough good works in your entire lifetime to reconcile yourself to God. You cannot do it on your own. You, can, you will never match up to the perfection of God. You may be a little better than I am, and the next person may be a little better or worse than you are, but none of us will meet and match the perfection of God. But Christ can reconcile you to God. We see that God gives life to the impossible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I want you to help me out. Where do doctors, nurses, certified nurse assistants, uh, anesthesiologists, where do these medical professionals normally report to work? Just give me a few places that these medical professionals would normally report to work. Hospital? Clinic? Those are the two main ways, two main areas. Why didn't anybody say cemetery? It's too late. Right in front of the cul-de-sac, which many of you will see when you come to our house for lunch today, but right, right across the other side of, from our house, across from the cul-de-sac, 
is a cemetery I have not yet once, and I've been in the cemetery many times. We ride our bikes through a little trail they have, and we even go and and look at some of the the tombstones to see some interesting information. I have never once seen a doctor or a nurse or a certified nurse assistant show up for work in the cemetery. Oh, Oh, wow, that's really deep, Pastor David. I know, I know. But they don't go to cemeteries because the people in the cemeteries are dead. Nurses, doctors, anesthesia, all these medical professionals, they're going to do their best to preserve life. They can't give life. Ephesians chapter 2 says, spiritually, you and I, apart from Christ, we are dead. We're dead. But yet, through the power of Jesus Christ, he does the impossible. He gives life to the impossible. No doctor, that the best at Emory, the best at Kennestone, the best at Northside, no doctor could walk in the cemetery this afternoon and say, okay, I'm going to bring this person back to life. It's impossible. But yet spiritually, that's what Christ does every single time someone accepts him as their Savior. He gives life to the impossible. This is motivated by his love, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, because of his great love, which he hath loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's a merciful love, but God being rich in mercy. It's a gracious love, for by grace are you saved through faith. We see, lastly, that it should be manifested by our life, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Good works, again, as I've said before, I want to be crystal clear, the the amount of good works that you do will never, never, ever be enough to save you. However, once Christ does the impossible, once God the impossible gives life to the impossible, the spiritually dead, you and me without Christ, then after we are made alive in Jesus Christ, one of our purposes is to serve him and do good works for his glory to bless others, to walk in them. Then believers, this is a huge encouragement. Lastly, we see that God leads his followers through the impossible. God leads his followers through the impossible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, another but God statement. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. So we see that God will always lead his followers through the impossible. He won't always take you out. He won't always take the temptation away, but if you follow Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will provide a way through. Last week, several of us from One Hope Church and others even from Metro Atlanta helped to lead some campus tours at Kennesaw State University, the Kennesaw campus, and the Marietta campus. I helped on the Marietta campus, which unfortunately is the campus that I know the least. I know the Kennesaw campus better. As I was walking around with one of the tour groups through the, thankfully I wasn't the main one leading the tour, probably would have been a disaster, but I was with some of the students and some of the students began to ask me questions. So, you know, David, where is this on campus? I'm like, uh, uh, well, let's consult your map here. <laughs> and David, where can I, one asked me, where can I run in this area? You know, what's a good park? And where can I, and I'm like, let me get back with you. Because I didn't know well the campus. Jesus Christ knows very well because he's all-knowing and he's the creator of the universe and of you and me. He knows exactly 
everything that we face. He's faced every temptation, the Bible says, yet without sin. And then we can come boldly to him for help. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4. You can look at that that later. But uh, follow God as he will always provide the way out. One of the things that you and I enjoy as humans, when we see something that seems impossible... If it's a movie, generally we have a pretty good idea that at the end, they're going to succeed. You know, whether it's really, you know, an action movie or even the Hallmarks, you know, at the end, they're going to get together and they're going to have that final kiss. And so as humans, we kind of we like to expect that. But in reality, we know that that doesn't always happen in our own human efforts. But yet God is saying here in his promise you're not going to face anything in your life. If you know me as your Savior, if you know me as your good shepherd, you're not going to face anything in your life that I will not be faithful to show you a way through. God, believers, will lead you through no matter what you face in your life. The end question is how are you going to respond? One of the last but God statements is we see in Psalm 73. And there's a question here, how will you respond Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? He, and he explains, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the psalmist, in a moment of weakness, he's thinking, Goodness, I see the wicked, I see the arrogant, they seem to be doing well, they seem to be succeeding. And he's saying, my, my feet almost slipped. I, I almost really had a, a wrong perspective. Let's continue on. Psalm 73, 12 uh, through 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. <clears throat> so he says, goodness, I, I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to do the right thing. But look at the wicked. They seem to succeed. They seem to be the ones at ease. They seem to be the ones that, that have, have riches. Have I lived this life in vain then for God? Let's continue on. Psalm 73, verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then jump to verse 26 through 28. My flesh and my heart failed. The psalmist is recognizing, goodness, I've just been reminded of my weakness. I've just been reminded of my limited understanding. My flesh and my heart fail, may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Friend, if you're here today and you, you don't know the Lord is your Savior, I, I want to warn you as a love of a friend that that path will not lead to success. That path is not going to lead to satisfaction. In fact, we see in Scripture that that path leads to punishment and separation, eternal separation from God. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But then notice... But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's the question. How will you respond to the God of the impossible? Will you continue to think, no, I, I, I can just figure out my own way. I can do it in my strength, and I'm a pretty dedicated person. 
Or will you understand and see the goodness, the power, the mercy, and the grace of Jesus Christ, of God the impossible, who is calling you, who is leading and wanting to have a personal relationship with you and making that possible through his death and his love that he showed on the cross. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning?